Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Every photographer is going to come across the situation where you feel, in retrospect, that you should have intervened. And, you know, the problem is you're there as a photographer and at what point do you decide it's more important to intervene to save somebody's life or whatever, rather than um, go on taking photographs? You know. Ian Berry is a photojournalist, a member of the prestigious Magnum Group of Photographers since 1962. He's been around the world on assignments for The Observer, Drum, National Geographic, Fortune, Esquire, The Telegraph, Paris Match and Life, amongst others. But Ian Berry isn't dying. Not in the impending sense, anyway. In fact, in many ways, he seemed more alive at 82 than I am, 40 years his junior. But he is at that stage of life when he has more miles on the clock than in front, so I was really pleased when he agreed to sit down with me. I'd heard he'd done something he regretted while working in Africa. I wondered if he still did. I'm Georgina Skull, and you're listening to Regrets of the Dying. I wanted to be a journalist, and uh, I discovered very quickly that... Um, I discovered, A, I couldn't really write my own name, and B, realised I wasn't going to get anywhere, you know, on a local paper in, in that sort of period. And then um, I had the chance to emigrate, I mean, I just wanted to go and travel and a little bit of adventure. I'd been in boarding school all my life, so I was kind of, you know, at 17, I was fairly independent. Luckily, Ian's dad knew a guy in South Africa who would guarantee him for a year, a guy that was also a photographer. He taught Ian how to print, about lighting, and gradually Ian moved into more editorial work, working for various African newspapers, and then the world-renowned drum magazine. Well, we did a lot of, a lot of stories. I mean, the guy that owned the magazine um, was the son of a mining magnate in South Africa. A sort of young, I say young, in his 30s, liberal, and raced horses on the side. All English kind of guy, you know, good-looking guy. And a total arsehole. Uh, <laughs> He, uh, uh, I mean, I went to work there and they paid me 
twice as much as the African photographer who was there. And that was the first time I, I was, I don't know, I might have been in my early 20s or whatever, and I was with a, a rather famous writer, a well-known writer called Tom Hopkinson, who had, journalist, I would say, although he, he wrote a lot of books, but he was editor of a magazine called Picture Post, which you might have heard of. Um, and he was then, I guess, in his 50s, late 50s, something like that. And we were in the Congo just after Congo independence from the Belgians. And um, we were running around in the townships and there were a lot of sort of troubles going on. We were in a cab and uh, suddenly saw coming down the road towards us one guy running like hell to escape a mob chasing him. And um, I immediately got out of the car. There were two other photographers in the car besides me. I got out of the car to, to photograph this guy, whatever was going on. You know, I didn't know what had caused this or anything about it. Um, and he was running towards me. And as he ran towards me, I took photographs. And uh, they were bashing him with sticks and uh, throwing rocks at him. Um, and as he came abreast of me, um, he fell. And uh, they just started to beat him. And I thought, you know, he's a goner. You know, that's, that's really it. And I have to say, I went on taking photographs. Um, the other two photographers stayed in the car. Tom Hopkinson, this guy who's already past middle age, got out and whilst I was photographing, rushed in and stood over this guy. And the crowd was so amazed at this, uh, the mob was so amazed at this white guy, you know, uh, standing over this guy on the ground that they stood back for a, a couple of moments. And Tom shouted at them in French, we were in the Congo, um, and it gave the guy enough time to get up and stagger off around the corner. Tom undoubtedly saved his life. And I <laughs> only sort of half jokingly said to Tom, and we'd been shooting all morning and I'd given him some of my exposed film to hold on to in case we had a problem and the film got confiscated, that sort of thing. And he was holding on to part of my film. And as he came back to the car, I said to him, look, you know, if you do a damn silly thing like that again, don't do it with my film in your pocket. <laughs> Only half joking. And, you know, and it took me quite a while to recognize that I'd made no attempt at all to help this guy. I had no thought to help this guy. Um, you know, I was just there as a photographer, and it was my job, what I was doing. But it was the very first time in my life that I recognized you've got to regard the moment when really it's not enough just to go on taking photographs. The other occasion when I really 
intended to interfere. I was in Northern Ireland um, during the, the Troubles. <laughs> and uh, the British Army had arrived and uh, I went over because there was an article in the Sunday Times by the then Insight team. When the Brits arrived to start with, they were welcomed by the Catholics um, because they thought that they were going to help. But as time went on, uh, it didn't exactly work out that way. And there are stories that the British soldiers were sort of becoming anti-Catholic and, you know, working the other way. So I, I went over to have a look and um, I sort of latched on to a patrol of British soldiers. That's about a, I suppose, I don't know how many there are in a patrol. I'm not a military person, but I think there are about somewhere between eight and ten people, soldiers. And I followed them around for a couple of hours and I could see they were getting a bit nervous about me following them around. You know, I was just interested to see what happened. Because, you know, kids were throwing stones and rocks and uh, Molotov cocktails and stuff. Finally, the sergeant in, in charge of this lot came over to me and I thought, I'm going to be told to show off. And he said, I recognize you. He said, you don't recognize me, but I was a mercenary in the Congo and uh, I worked with you there. And he went, took me back to the other guy. He says, all right, fellas, he's one of us, it's no problem. And I went on following them. And essentially what they did was um, the kids would, uh, would throw rocks at them. They would fire rubber bullets. So I did it from both sides, from behind the kids. And in fact, I stopped a rubber bullet in the arm. Um, and then the soldiers would retreat a bit um, behind a, an area where they were partially concealed. And so the kids would follow them throwing rocks. And then they would close in on the ringleaders. And they got these two kids. I say kids, they were probably 17, 18 year olds. And started to beat hell out of them. They were on the ground, they were beating them with their rifle butts and kicking them. And I kind of thought, oh God, you know, what do I do about this? And I actually had time to think about it. And then luckily for me, an officer turned up, saw what was happening, waded in and stopped them. But I, I've always wondered since, would I actually ever have, um, you know, ever have done anything? I like to think I might have done, but um, you, you're not sure, you know, as a photographer, as an outsider, if I'd sort of waded in and tried to stop them. I asked Ian what he would have done if he saw someone being attacked when he wasn't working, if he was at home in the UK. Well, this, this is the kind of whole point. I mean, I, the most interesting situation for me, and I wasn't there, was a, a colleague of mine at Magnum, a French photographer called Marc Ribot, was, um, was there during the last uh, Indo-Pakistani Fracar war, if you like. 
and I can't remember which way round it was, but either the, an Indian soldier had a Pakistani prisoner or the other way round. I can't remember now. And the soldier had this guy on the ground and had his rifle with a bayonet on and was threatening him. And there were a lot of photographers around. And uh, Mark uh, kind of realized that the guy with the gun was being um, excited by and influenced by all these photographers standing around. And Mark said, look, we've got to walk away from this, otherwise the guy's going to do this prisoner harm. And Mark persuaded the majority of the photographers to walk away from it. And actually the guy went on and bayoneted the guy to death. And one of the photographers who stayed and photographed it won the Pulitzer Prize for his pictures in, in, in America. I mean, I like to think, had I been there, I would have walked away with Mark. Um, but you don't know, and you don't know to what extent. But, you know, the guy that stayed and took the pictures and won a prize for it, you know, is pretty horrendous, really. I wondered about the photographers that left. I wondered how did they feel about walking away and doing the right thing when the man that stayed was rewarded for it. I don't know. Um, Mark sort of told me this, and uh, I heard it from one of the other guys who walked away, half regretting that he walked away. But I, these things, um, these things happen. There isn't time, or you know, you don't really have the. Uh, I don't know what the word is. The, the sort of clout to interfere. Every photographer is going to come across the situation where you feel, in retrospect, that you should have intervened. And, you know, the problem is you're there as a photographer to, to, to record, and at what point do you decide it's more important to intervene to save somebody's life or whatever, rather than um, go on taking photographs? You know, you're doing it as a as a job, um, I think, you know, you, you feel justified in being there. Um, you know, you're there to record what's going on. I mean, look, the only value in photography, really, we're not brain surgeons, and um, it's really showing people on one side of the world what's going on to people on the other side of the world. And essentially, people are much the same wherever you go. You know, they're good and bad. I, I'm really lucky in that I lived through the heyday of photojournalism. I mean, the whole world is kind of changing now. Um, magazine photography is dying. Um, and we're all trying to switch to the web. Um, you know, whereas I did Maggie Thatcher for Newsweek, I did Farage for Newsweek just for the web. If you look around there, we have a lot of young ladies working for us, and it's the same on the magazines. That, and you know, why would a picture editor on the Sunday Times, you know, who's a 28-year-old lady, hire an old fart like me? You know, I want to be travelling and um, and shooting. I mean, I was refused a visa to Pakistan or an entry permit 
um, last year, because of my age. Yeah, um, but we're not all like A.A. Gill, gonna kick the bucket in our 60s. Journalists tend to live to a ripe old age, as do photographers, actually. I mean, I'm, I've gone from being the youngest member of Magnum to actually, I think I'm right in saying I'm not the oldest photographer, but I'm the oldest member, which that's a bit sort of, uh, you know, that's a bit naff. Who was the famous Swedish actress? Uh, Bergman. Well, I was madly in love with Ingrid Bergman. <laughs> um, I mean, from afar, I didn't know her. I'd never met her. And I always wanted to go and photograph her, just to see what she was like. Anyway, the years passed and I forgot all about it. And then a German magazine called me one day and said, we're going to do a thing on Ingrid Bergman. Uh, can you persuade her to be photographed? Because she'd been turning people down left, right, and center. So I did the whole thing, you know. I had a room at the Ritz, I had a roller to go and pick her up and bring her to the thing. And um, I went in to photograph her. There was this old lady, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, you know, she, I suppose she was in her 60s. And she was terrific, but not the lady I've been wanting to photograph for years. Ian has travelled the world. He's documented conflicts in Africa, Israel, Ireland, Vietnam and the Congo, the famine in Ethiopia and apartheid in South Africa. He's had 12 books published, including two with introductions by Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Francois Mitterrand. He's had the kind of adventurous life few of us will ever get to experience. But I got the feeling after two hours of chatting that even though he had doubts about being a bystander and continuing to work when he could have helped, he was pretty pragmatic about it, realising that in the end his job was to document and not to interfere. So I asked him again after 82 years of life, what did he regret? His answer lay a lot closer to home. I mean, my regrets are fairly simple. I regret not spending more time with my parents. Yeah, I didn't want to get involved in uh, my sort of family's business. And uh, I had a younger brother who I knew did. And, um, and so that worked fine. I mean, I just wanted to go and travel and a little bit of adventure. I'd been in boarding school all my life. So I was kind of, um, um, you know, at 17, I was fairly independent. You sort of, you know, you regret these things, you know, how little we actually know about our, our parents, grandparents. My father lived into his 90s, and um, even then I didn't ever sit down and we were always talking about what was going on today, you know, in politics and everything else, not, not what he'd seen and done. And I, I regret that. You've been listening to Regrets of the Dying. Next time. I think 
the simplest regret and the most tragic was young parents who they thought that their two-year-old was secure in the back garden. They were coming in, was afraid they were going to ask to have her clothes back. Mercifully, they just asked for her hat because she was so proud of her hat. Yes. This was a proper podcast with support from Acast. Goodbye and thanks for joining me.